Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday. Uh, it's Tuesday, March 2nd, 2021. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And we're here to talk all things tech that we are interested in. So uh, let's talk a little bit about some events that we have coming up and some, some uh, things that we have uh, posted recently. So if you go to chariotsolutions.com and you go to resources blog, uh, you'll see we have a, a new 15 minutes with Tracy Wilson-Rossman, uh, Soma Gaudipati uh, on AI and AR in the beauty industry. So she is the vice president of Estee Lauder uh, for global brand technologies. And the, the, the thrust of this article is that, you know, people don't come in right now because of COVID, for example. So uh, companies like Estee Lauder are trying to find ways of using AI and AR uh, to come and make them experience work so that you can try on different uh, beauty products. So uh, that's an interesting talk. Uh, I know Tracy and Becca were uh, trying out the tech. So they were, they were trying the uh, different features, for example, before it started. So this is an interesting talk with her uh, on the tech behind all those things. Uh, coming up, we have our 30 years of Linux and open source software. Uh, and so it's a uh, you know, going to start off, uh, it's a free event, and that's happening on March 18th. It's going to start off uh, at 3.15 with uh, Chariot's multi-decade journey with open source, with uh, Aaron Mulder and I kind of chatting about all the different types of open source projects and Linux and things like that that we've used uh, on various projects. Um, and, you know, how we've dealt uh, with open source as well. Uh, there are a few of us that have done individual open source projects too, so I'll try to keep a list of some of those that we've done. And then our special guest is Nithya Ruff. Um, she works at Comcast uh, in, their, in the director of the open source office there. Uh, and she's also the chair of the Linux board of directors, the Linux Foundation. So we can talk about what they do and how she helps govern uh, Linux and her, her team does. And then we'll have a little happy hour event. Um, and we're using Gather for that. So that's a free event. 3.15 p.m. on March 18th, a little over two weeks away, uh, and it is free again. Uh, so sign up for that, and we'll have the link in the show notes here, but if you go to Chariot uh, Resources Events, you'll see it there. We also have an executive town hall series, uh, and so this one's Leadership Strategies to Derive Innovation, Growth, and Resiliency. The interview that uh, Tracy is doing is with uh, Humio CEO Gita Schmidt, uh, and they're going to talk about uh, agile uh, innovation. And so you can see that one also free. That's coming up on March 10th uh, at 11 a.m. Okay, so a lot of good stuff coming up here. Of course, we're bearing the lead if we don't mention uh, Philly Emerging Technology for the Enterprise. Uh, we keep completing our speaker list for this. Uh, so it is $89 a ticket. I think it's pretty reasonable. It's a three-day event, May 4th through 6th. Uh, we may even have a work workshop coming in the news, so that'll be soon. Uh, but, uh, you know, this will be our 15th year doing ETE, and our keynote speaker is Alan Kay, who helped invent personal computing by creating one of the first graphical user interfaces, the first, I believe. And I believe that's the one that, uh, uh, um, who, oh, geez, Steve Jobs saw uh, when he was touring at Xerox Park. So without that, there'd be no Macintosh. So he's a really interesting person. We can't believe we have him. Uh, and that's just one of our speakers. He's our keynote speaker. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to a lot of these talks. Uh, we've got, you know, all sorts of interesting speakers like, uh, you know, uh, 
Anithia is going to be speaking. We're, we have, um, let's see, Kent Beck, the author of Extreme Programming. Uh, he's going to be speaking. That's a fantastic talk. Who are some of the people you're looking at? I don't mean to throw it at you there, uh, Sujan, but um, I mean, I, Jessica, Alan Kay, Kent Beck, uh, Daniel Spivak, Brian Getz, uh, David Nolan, Closure Script. So, I mean, there's a lot of people. And there's some local people too, like Michael Becker, who's runs um, or is involved in a lot of data science, data engineering stuff in the Philly area and some meetups around that. So kind of excited to see new faces, faces from the community, um, our own Keith Gregory. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. Again, it's one of those years where I'm going to struggle with, well, where do I spend my time? Who do I listen to first? Like that was always the issue when it was in person is like, I wanted to go to all the talks and I couldn't. So yeah. I guess it's nice that, everything's going to be basically online and soon available. So I'll be able to handle the logistics better around that. And we can turn that around re really quickly now because everything is on zoom, everything's being recorded. So it's not like we have to go into a conference center and set up the video and, you know, decode it and copy it over. So, it, you know, if you uh, take one of these tickets, you certainly will be able to watch all the content in very short order within the first week or two afterwards at bare minimum. Um, yeah, a lot of really good stuff here. So again, 2021.phillyemergingtech.com or phillyete.com. It'll take you there, uh, 89 bucks. And again, that is uh, May 4th through 6th, 2021. It's International uh, Women's History Month. Uh, so in March, uh, it's Women's History Month. I'm sorry, it's national by presidential proclamation. Uh, and so it started as Women's History Week, but uh, we're focusing on the innovations of women. Uh, and what we've done at Chariot is we've spotlighted all of the talks that we've had from our different women speakers across, you know, ETE, 15 Minutes With, different presentations we've done. And so uh, Tracy and Becca, our, our awesome producer, uh, have put together this list. So if you want to see some of the different things that we have that we've talked about, they're all there. Um, you know, from IoT events that we've had women speak at to ETE to Lightning Talks at ETE to, uh, you know, different events that we've run. Uh, it's all there. It's really good stuff. Yeah, and, um, there's 74 videos there. That's a lot of content. That's almost average hour of video. That's like more than three days nonstop of content. Yep, yep. And we're pushing really hard for uh, uh, both diverse in terms of women speaking at ETE this year, as well as ethnically diverse. So, you know, we really do care about uh, bringing voices to the fore. Uh, and so if you want to check that out, you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions and look at our playlist called spotlight our amazing women speakers. Another thing, uh, Don Coleman, uh, hit me to just now before we started, um, is Microsoft's ignite conference. This used to be called tech ed years ago. Um, and so, uh, the, in fact, hey, the 2014 one in Barcelona was the last one using that name. And I went to a tech ed in Spain, 1995 or 1996 uh, for Microsoft years ago. So this has been going on forever. Uh, it's a, a conference that is now online and now free this year. Uh, has lots of presentations, whiteboard sessions, hands-on labs, things like that. Um, online, I'm not sure how they're doing it, but uh, again, free to register for. And so if you're doing a lot of Microsoft technologies, check them out. And that is ignite.microsoft.com. Okay, that's enough of the announcements then. So let's start talking about some news. 
Um, you know, we've been talking about a lot of cloud outages lately and ISP-driven outages. And, uh, you know, not to point fingers or anything, but just to bring them up. And uh, so there was a, a, an outage last week um, for credit card payment systems. It was out for about an hour. Uh, and so the, the source seemed to be an ISP uh, that was um, being used by Fiserv. Uh, and so Ann Cave, company spokesperson, this is uh, based on Business Insider, uh, added an email that some Fiserv services that rely on internet connectivity were, were interrupted. Um, and we're not sure what uh, internet provider that was, but you know, this is just yet another thing. We're an increasingly connected world. There's a lot of people online. Um, a lot of people are physically doing business online. Uh, and so that could be a real challenge when services go down. That's, uh... <laughs> wow. Yeah, this doesn't happen that often. I mean, I remember sometimes you go out during Christmas rush in the mall and you might get one or two providers where you have to re-swipe or something. But uh, this is like an online payment system going down. So, yeah, uh, it'd be interesting to see. Um, you Even know, there's a hardware impact now that a lot of people are shopping and just conducting transactions online versus in store. So this definitely, uh, oh, there's down detector again. Got to love. You know I was starting to go down the road of looking at down detector a little bit because everything's using it now to everyone's using it to track things. Um, but it's like one of these little things that came out, it was uh, a simple page for a long time that, that, that grew over years, but um, yeah, down detector constantly. Yeah, their, their page, views go, their page views go up when all the other shit's going down. <laughs> yeah. Right now. No problems at Visa, <laughs> but uh, you know, at least now anyway, but uh yeah, it's interesting to see. Should do a whole show just on Down Detector itself and the tech around it, you know? Um, it becomes like a place where people complain a lot, too. It's like forums around those services to hear what people are running into. So it's kind of interesting to, to browse that now and then. All right. Um, I, I've been looking at this fish shell uh, on uh, Linux and, and uh, Apple for a while just because it keeps coming up in my search feeds. Um, apparently it's an alternative shell that's uh, like a, a more usability-driven uh, Unix shell. You can run it on uh, you know, any Unix operating system or Linux operating system. Uh, it has a lot of nice features. Well, apparently version 3.2 was released uh, on the first. Um, nice, nice looking shell to work with. Obviously, if you're doing programming, I wouldn't be focusing on anything other than bash or, you know, yeah, basically bash is the only shell that I write scripts for, for, for automating things, but there is a whole scripting engine for it. So maybe for personal productivity, you might find it to be useful. You know, it's got uh, tools in it that they've added in 3.2. Uh, for example, um, there's like a string match tool, um, you know, so you can pipe to string match and like certain things. Um, you can do fish add path to add things to your path, uh, which is a helper instead of doing, you know, export path equals path plus whatever, uh, things like that. I've been happy with, uh, I've been, I've, for many years now, I've been using oh my ZSH. Me too. And Me too. Obviously, Bash for all the actual like programming and scripting for actual um, development activities. But there's too many different things out there. And I mean, those have stood the test of time. Yeah, definitely. So I kind of plan on sticking with them. So it's nice. There's just a proliferation of things. So I'd rather see you not a knock against this is it's awesome that people are, are doing this kind of stuff and, and looking at it from a usability perspective and not assuming that everyone is 
someone who's just going to grok the command line and all the various incantations right away. But I'd rather people try to build you utilities within the existing shells that make them better versus like, hey, let's just try a whole different thing. Yeah. It, it's interesting, in, at least from the language perspective, it seems like a lot more user-friendly, for example. So, you know, like even the, the if statements being a little more easy to work with. Right. Um, you know, whatever. It, it's 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 an interesting thing to, to kick around. Um, just out of curiosity, do you use Fish? So go ahead and, you know, tweet back at TechCast or email us at uh, techcastfeedback at cherrysolutions.com. Let us know that you're using it. Um, just a, kind of an interesting little piece to talk about. Yeah. There was a link I didn't include today that I was going to, um, someone had put together basically a Bash-based unit testing framework to, oh, cool. unit, to unit test Bash functions and Bash scripts. And it's actually, it, it looks really cool and very clean and nicely designed. But at a certain point, you're like, well, if you're doing that much in Bash that you don't have to unit test your stuff, like maybe you should not be writing those things in Bash and you should be writing them right. as Python scripts. And that's some of the comments that were on Hacker News as well. It's like, this is great, but maybe you shouldn't be unit testing yourself. And if you are unit testing Bash, you probably should switch over to something like Python, which I ended up having to do on previous projects where the Bash stuff was getting too complex and hard to maintain. And I was like, why am I writing this in Bash? I'll just use Python. And as a matter of fact, we can kind of like jump forward to the Python one because speaking of, oh, Python is 30. Yeah, no, no, you're fine. Actually, I thought that that's probably the better run order for this. So uh turns out that if you're using Python as a scripting language, good. It's been around for 30 years, uh, along with Linux uh, and, you know, um, some open source licensing. Uh, Python itself is also 30 years old. So turns out uh, it was created by Guido von Rossum uh, back 30 years ago on February 20th. Um, very easy language to pick up, really straightforward syntax, uh, runs everywhere, uh, powers a whole bunch of cloud resources. Data scientists are using it. Um, now that seems to be the big, you know, cool new feature. IoT boards, some of, some of them can run Python. Cloud stuff, a lot of Lambdas written in Python. It's just, it's really had a big resurgence over the last couple of years. We certainly see it in our consulting a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, in terms of Red, Red Monk's ratings, uh, turns out, let's see if we can get some good information here. Uh, in June 2020, Python's way up there on the top right, according to them, way up there with Java and JavaScript. So, uh, you know, certainly one of the bigger languages. If you're not using it, you're probably going to run into it at some point uh, out there in the wild. Um, and also, you had a survey you brought up, right? Python developer survey for 2020? Yeah. Um, this is a collaboration between the Python Software Foundation and JetBrains. And this is the first time I'm actually had looked at it. I hadn't looked at it in years past. Mm -hmm. So they've been doing it actually for a fair number of years. Um, and what stood out to me mainly, what they so they they basically it's, it's like a survey that you may have seen for other languages where they look at like language adoption, where it's being used, what industries is being used for, what kind of applications are being used. They have an interesting okay. section um, to scroll down about how Python is being used in combination with other languages, and where like so Python and JavaScript is kind of the top, and then Python HTML, Python and Bash, blah blah blah, and it goes kind of down the list there. So I found that interesting, you know. Not surprised to see JavaScript being the top one up there yeah. with uh, Python. But later on in the survey, what I do find interesting and contradictory to a, to a certain degree is, so they asked two questions about uh, what are 
you know, the favorite Python features in the, in the community? And then what are the most requested or desired features? So in the top five favorite, it's, it's in fifth place is dynamic typing, um, which for folks that don't know is um, basically your, the ability to uh, write your variables without specifying the type. Um, at runtime, the type is determined based off of how um, the data is being used and what you're calling. Um, it allows for more flexible interfaces and easier to write code, but sometimes it's harder to maintain, harder to understand the documentation and test. So you really need to test your code really well to make sure it can handle types that you're expecting the right way since it's not apparent in the actual signature of your functions. But anyway, um, and then in the most requested features in the top three are static typing and strict type hinting. Um, <laughs> yeah. so that, that's a little contradictory and, you know, I wonder how, you know, are they, like, how are they running these surveys and who are they asking? What's that whole like survey methodology? But um, it's interesting. What I take that as is that more and more people are writing Python, more and more people are writing larger systems in Python. And a ton of people these days are using it for data engineering and data science um, where they really need to, uh, since they're dealing with data all day, the types are really important. Um, so I think things like static typing are becoming more and more important to them and they want it because they want to be able to write error free. They want to be able to write robust code that has less errors and less surprises at runtime. And they want to be able to specify exactly what data am I expecting to come in and what data is coming out. Um, so I think you're, we're just seeing that as a natural evolution of Python being used in data engineering and data science a lot more. And also probably the the... the universe of people that are answering that question are probably not the universe of people using it as a dynamic typing language too. So it's just over overall, you're seeing different camps. Exactly. Filtering into the language. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I like this. This is, this is interesting to see what people really care about and, what, and want. Um, you know, very cool. Okay. So we'll have a link to that again uh, in our show notes. Okay. Um, let's go into another topic, which this is an interesting one because I know, I think it was last year, um, there was a, a wave of, of IT people making sure uh, to discuss some of the old terms that have been used that, that come from potentially racist origins, uh, and tech is trying to take that on. So uh, you flagged this. Let's talk about this a little bit. So MongoDB um, colleagues have been... Uh, have yeah, so this article kind of just goes generally into like, okay, you know, diversity, inclusion in software development and open source communities and some racist terminology like master, slave, um, and whitelist, blacklist that have been prevalent terms that we learn in our in our classes, um, in education, in any documentation we read, in any architectural books we read. Just it, they're very prevalent and, and widespread. So yeah. there's been a movement to try to um, stop using those terms because their connotations are very negative, um, and to get away from that and make it more inclusive. And I, I think that it's the terms are one thing, right? But it's really that. The fact that a lot of things are being used without realizing what they mean to certain people, I think that's really the underlying issue is that addressing that will get people more aware and, and be more inclusive and respectful of their coworkers. So yeah. it's great to see that this is um, being discussed more and more. Um, they interviewed two people from MongoDB um, for this article um, that are involved in that and then just a general open source community. And then in the article, there's a link to another initiative called the, uh, I believe the Inclusive Naming Initiative, inclusivenaming.org, mm -hmm. uh, where they're really trying to basically get the open source community and people involved 
in helping out and spreading knowledge around this and curating a list of terms that um, would be deemed as, you know, uh, probably, you know, racially um, or ethnically insensitive and then coming up with alternate terms um, that people should be using. Now, right now, that list is very small. It's just master, slave and blacklist, whitelist. And they mm -hmm. provide, uh, you know, maybe we, we can go into um, that list of, so like, for example, with whitelist, blacklist, you can do things like allow list or deny list or allowed right. nouns, denied nouns. And with master slave, you can do things like, you know, primary, secondary, um, controller, doer, primary replica, leader, follower, parent, child. Anyway, so um, yep. I expect that this was, list will grow over time. Um, although at the moment myself, I don't know of too many other terms off the top of my head that would go onto this list. But uh, it, it's, it's nice to see that people are thinking about this. Um, and I definitely will, you know, I myself have not been good about replacing my terminology with the things in this list and I need to get better at that. And this is going to make me think about that more. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something that's just kind of baked into a lot of, you know, property sets and rule sets and pieces of information and software. So you see it every day, uh, yeah. but if you're building something on your own and you're, you know, thinking about that, you might choose to use better, better terms that aren't having these backgrounds and they're naming Okay. Um, here's one, DevTools. Uh, so Chrome 89 is, I believe, the, is that the right one? Let me double check. We're going to go to our settings and go to about Chrome 88. So Chrome 88 is the current version of Chrome that most people would have the updated. Uh, 89 is in uh, beta, and then uh, 90 is available, I guess, through Chrome Canary, I would guess. Um, but coming up soon uh, in Chrome, and probably in six months to a year, you're going to see uh, some features uh, land. For example, CSS Flexbox debugging. This is nice. So you can flip around your different uh, settings for Flexbox and visually see the settings that you're going to be using, which is really nice. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I know for me, a lot of this stuff is trial and error and playing around with settings and double clicking inside that styles list and typing something and getting it wrong six times, you know, but it'd be nice to be able to have kind of like a visual marker for what those things are, which is kind of cool. Yeah. That's pretty um, much like all UI front end development to me. And so when I did more CS yeah. years ago, it was trial and error and like doing things back then I was using, I think JS fiddle and other things to like outside of the software project I was working on to quickly prototype certain things. And once I got it working the way I wanted with that rapid feedback, I would, try to make some sort of component. I wasn't doing components at the time, but then put it back into the actual code base and integrate it with um, the application we we're working on. But tools like that helped me a lot to be able to do something outside of the repo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's one cool thing. Um, you know, now there's like a, a Flexbox section of the layout pane. So you can see all the elements, see where things are and like jump to them, which is kind of cool. Um, so that's coming in in Chrome uh, DevTools in 90. Um, Web Vitals, uh, these started showing up um, in Chrome 89. I played, I downloaded uh, the the uh, Chrome beta on Linux and was hacking around a little bit. So this core Web Vitals shows up. So you'll get these things in your if you're if you're doing like a monitor of of you know performance. Mm -hmm. um, you can use the show rendering command. Uh, now, some of this stuff is, like I said, in there in the in the beta of 89, but they've got a couple things they track, like largest contentful paint, which is loading performance. So, uh, and their rule is that it would be within 2.5 seconds when the page first starts loading, you get the biggest chunk uh, of content. And that means that people won't 
think of leaving. You know, that's kind of what they're thinking in the Chrome developer uh, tools community. First input delay, like when can I interact? So hopefully you get interaction between, you know, zero to 100 milliseconds uh, of the site. Um, cumulative layout shift, if it, if it uh, keeps changing the layout as it loads things, that's really jarring to oh, me. Nice. So they're hoping of less than uh, 0 0.1 okay. for that. So some things that they've been working on uh, that you'll see uh, in, you know, content in the dev tools. I'll have to look at a, there's, so um, on one of our projects, Drew Dakar may put Lighthouse into the process. So there's Lighthouse tests that are run that um, tell you whether you're following all the right things for like building a PWA and it gives you a score. Oh, yeah. And um, what you need to basically work on. I wonder if some of these checks are actually also happening in there, but this is nice because you don't have to install another tool. Like they're trying to say like everyone should be looking at these things whenever yeah. you're developing. Um, so that's nice that Chrome's doing that. Right. And you'll get things like the issues will show up here now on the, on the console status bar. Um, so you'll, you'll get that instead of an issue message in the console. So that's probably where that would show up, but now you'll see them right here um, coming up in a couple, you know, eight months to a year. I don't know. Um, you know, web activity issues, uh, trusted web activity issues. Uh, I was reading about uh, tokens that they're working on now uh, for, uh, where is it on here? Trust tokens pain. I'm going to jump up to this. So apparently there's this thing called trust tokens. Uh, and I don't know if this is a Chrome initiative or this is an open initiative in, you know, HTTP and, and you know, all that stuff. Uh, but uh, trust tokens are things that you can be issued so that they can kind of track your browser movements without tracking you as a human. Um, we'll see where that goes. But apparently there's a trust tokens thing that I need to get more literate about. Um, you know, apparently this trust tokens thing is a new API. Um, and it will try to help distinguish bots from real humans. So you know that a human actually browsed from place to place and not a bot trying to emulate that human. So maybe we'll do something later on that at mm. some point and we'll talk about that as that comes to the fore. Maybe it's been around. Maybe this is something that marketing and, and Chrome developers have been working on. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely interested in looking at that because I have skept like knee-jerk skeptical yep. reactions to that because I feel like, okay, that, yep. helps, that helps large companies filter the noise out of the signal so they can see what should be tracked. But all, all the other trackers that are tracking you are correlated with that anyway. So it doesn't matter that the trust token may not actually identify you because other stuff does. So this, if any, that, that's my knee-jerk reaction that this is helping them sift through data. Like the real, the real thing is that they're getting data better, but, but it's a, a veneer of it's really good for you too. Hmm, who knows? Exactly. So yeah. So anyway, you might want to check into that. That might be something you put on our radar to, to see what's going on. But I have no idea what I'm talking about there. So I mean, <laughs> I, 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 that's totally unfounded on my part. Yeah, it might be great, you know? Um, all right. So, and then, you know, this is interesting. Emulate the CSS color gamut media feature. So test the approximate range of colors supported by the browser and the output device. So if you're on a mobile phone with a lot wide color gamut, this is what this is roughly going to look like. This is like when you take a picture in Photoshop and you want to see what it looks like as a printed print in a, you know, like a, a uh, matte printing surface, like what colors are going to bleed too much and things like that. So this gives you an idea of like, you know, what different devices might look like with your CSS, which is Excellent. really cool. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Was, it's funny. I, I was looking at a, some, I, IMACs now have, you know, 27 inch 5K displays that are P3 color mm -hmm. again. And article I didn't, I don't think I linked, but someone had 
basically built their own 5K 20-inch uh, display out of the shell of an iMac, and they ordered um, the screen off of, like eBay for 350 bucks. It was used, but it was the same exact components that Apple uses and put it together and connected it up. And so he has two 27-inch iMac dual displays, both at 5K, because um, wow. they're really, really expensive. So he found a cheap way of getting the secondary one. Um, it looks really amazing. And they have that high color range, the high color. So just so in case you've never dealt with color gamuts before, if you're not that uh, aware of them, different devices can output different ranges of color. Some are more, you know, wide in terms of all the colors they can represent, and some are less. Usually yeah. the cheapest monitors you buy have a terrible color gamut, and they're close to uh, like the RGB one or whatever, which is the standard one that most LCDs have. But I learned a lot about this in photography. So, you know, different cameras have different color gamuts. So it's neat to see that you can actually now preview this kind of thing. I didn't know much about it. So I had to like, just now I looked up P3 because I'd heard the term earlier today. Yeah. And it said like that's supposed to faithfully reproduce like what digital projectors and movie theaters use. So if oh. I'm aware of the filming and cinematic things. So Adobe uses it as well. So I think Apple, that's why they have a P3 color gamut for that. For the, yeah, they used to have things called Adobe RGB, for example. That's what right. you would throw it into that color space, which is wider, and edit on that color space and then push it down to the one you were printing or showing. So okay. it's neat to see the browsers are even getting into the game there. That's kind of cool. Um, here we go. Improved progressive web apps tooling is coming. Uh, so now you know, it'll actually give you more information. So more details. Site cannot be installed. Page does not work offline. Starting Chrome 93. In the future, the instability criteria is changing. This site will not be installable. Oh, I need wow. more details. Yeah. So this might help Drew in his debugging of things um, and so on. And there's more information here. So cool stuff coming in Chrome, uh, in Chrome 90. If you want to play with that early, you can get the Chrome Canary, which will be previewing the 90 features of Chrome. The beta is 89, like I said. Here's another fun thing. Pearl.com got hijacked. So apparently, that's bad. Uh, <laughs> it's an interesting story. So if you have to manage websites and you may have to deal with domain ownership, uh, this is a story where someone detailed very specifically, they were an editor uh, of the website that uses the Pearl.com domain. Uh, Pearl.com, uh, Tom Christensen is the registrant. Uh, and so he had to manage it though. So he put a team together and tried to figure out what was happening. So it's kind of fun story to, to real, uh, read about what happened. Um, and so let's see here if I can find something. This is kind of a big, uh, dense bunch, bunch of text. Uh, but basically, it looks like they changed the name servers to point to another server, That's which is what happened. Um, and so, you know, he talks about, like, all the different forensic work. So John Berryhill um, went through and did some digging using, I guess, a, a Whois lookup and things like that. Um, you know, so they talked about, like, the fact that the um, – let's see here. Trying to find the actual piece of text. Um, domain was registered in the early 90s. Tom Christians was given control of it shortly after that and kept paying registration fees. Since it wasn't a nagging problem, the domain was left as is. Features such as two-factor authentication probably would have saved us much of the trouble, uh, although social engineering attacks also try to route around that. I lost my key. Can you help me reset it? Um, you know, my, 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 uh, my, my key generator. Um, the domain um, having the contacts visible 
Um, you know, that was one thing. There's something about that in here. Let me see if I can find it. And where is it on here? Oh, well, I'm going to screw up this, uh, this discussion. Let's just say that if you ever had something like this happen to you, it could be a fun read uh, to see where the pain was. Oh, we learned very quickly when you use your registered domain name for your email contact, no one can contact you when that domain no longer handles your mail. There's a big one right there, right? So if you registered this thing back in the 90s and you were using something and now you're on Gmail and you forgot to update that and something goes wrong, you've got a big problem. So, you know, basic stuff to think about. And I just turned on two-factor for my domain names recently just because I wanted to make sure that, like, no one could hijack it without having a code. Um, so that's, you know, an interesting thing to think about. There were other, uh, apparently with that issue, like, there was an issue with um, basically the reg registering the domain, right? Someone was able to register that domain name for the next 10 years. So th <laughs> that account was hacked. And then apparently because of that, account being hacked, uh, other domains were compromised as well. I wonder oh. what those were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So anyway, hey, if you have domain names out there, make sure they're secured as best as possible and consider two-factor at a bare minimum and maybe read up on this. Maybe there's some lessons learned. All right, we just did the Python thing. All right, we'll do the Swift 5.4 here briefly. Um, so, uh, Steve Smith, uh, our, our mobile practice lead, uh, put this up here. I'm not a Swift expert, but apparently in Swift 5.4, there's some interesting new features such as multiple variadic parameters. Um, sorry, I'll go up here. Improved implicit member syntax, result builders, and a bunch of other stuff. So if you're a Swift person, Swift 5.4 is out. Check it out. This looks like a pretty good hacking with Swift website. Looks like a pretty good one that kind of goes through some examples of things you can and can't do. Uh, nice samples uh, and features, and it links to each of the individual features in GitHub for each of these new things. So multiple variadic parameters and functions, having more than one dot, dot, dot thing, probably based on types, right? It sees that it switches from int to string, and I guess it's okay with it, right? So here's my, uh, oh, and it's, it's named, it's position, it's not positional, it's named, right? So times is a named type and has multiple entries, and then players is the next name type with its multiple entries. And so they're allowing that kind of thing to happen. I was looking at the, the when, when, the, when you mentioned implicit member syntax, I started having nightmares about Scala. Scala has a <laughs> lot of things that are um, implicit types, implicit conversion, and a number of patterns or type patterns, one famous one called the type class pattern that all rely on how Scala handles implicit conversion, implicit resolution. And this one is a little bit different and a lot simpler than that, but uh, I'll have to look into it further because that kind of stuff scares me a little bit. Yeah, doing this on the fly as I'm reading the news article, I'll look like a big fool. But yeah. but right, so check that out if you're doing Swift and if you can move up the Swift 5.4, you might have these features you might want to take advantage of. Yeah, so I think it, in the case of the scope is very limited as to what it, you, it'll try to infer the type and then figure out a con proper conversion based off of that. Mm -hmm. um, depending on how you're referencing it. But the scope is probably a lot more limited than it is in Scala. So hopefully it's easier to, the rules are simple for it and not hard to debug when something goes wrong. Yeah, that's part of the problem with Scala is it's almost like write once in a lot of cases. You look at it, you know, write only language. You look at it and you're like, what did this developer mean? You know, because the syntax is so odd. Yeah. 
Okay, Compose Samples in Android, what are these? You brought this one up, Jetpack? Um, yeah, so the, the first link I'd put there was the, the page to oh. um, Android Jetpack itself. So Android Jetpack Compose is kind of Android stab at declarative UI development for Android applications. Um, so it provides, by declarative mean like, you know, you're, you're basically building components and in, instead of programmatically um, defining UI behavior as a set of actions and what happens with those actions and um, building, building each widget up separately and then composing them together yourself. Um, this kind of, if you look here, you're declaratively saying like, here's a widget tree, here's a card, here's what's gonna happen to that card when it gets expanded, when it's clicked on. Um, and this is what animation I want to occur with the text in this case, with uh -huh. the text to expand out when you click on it and then contract when you click again on it. So um, basically, you know, Swift UI is doing declarative UI development at this point. Flutter um, does declarative uh, component UI development. So I think that's the trend, that's where things are going. Um, my experience, um, limited experience in that is that that allows for a much easier understanding um, and building up of composable, reusable um, UI components, especially for programmers. So it's more of a, like in my opinion, like a programmer first um, mm -hmm. UI development where they're keeping an engineer in mind and making it easy to style or reuse existing styles across um, different components. So anyway, this is out 1.0 beta right now. I haven't played around with it. I'm not an Android developer, so I'm curious to talk to our uh, mobile guys to see what they what their thoughts are on this or what parts of Jetpack are already being used on on, on our projects. Um, so, and then um, that article uh, links to GitHub repo um, by Google of a bunch of sample projects using that, so you can learn how to use it yourself, which is pretty nice. Here they are. Yeah, I was just trying to be lucky and click at the right thing at the right time. <laughs> but, but yeah. Yeah, Very it's a lot cool. less like, hey, let's build this out. Like instead of having to like define your widgets and everything in XML and it's kind of uh, kludgy and hard to understand and it's separated from your code. This is like, hey, your code and your component widgets are gonna live in the same place, which I, which, um, I like. Cool, here's all the tests for them and everything. So this looks great. Definitely something to get to jump on if you're an Android developer. Okay, uh, OpenStreetMap, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so OpenStreetMap has started in 2004, and since then has had over 100 million, you know, user contributions, user edits. So this is an open source project, you know, nonprofit. It's people contributing hyperlocal data back to OpenStreetMap. Um, so it's a fan. It's a it, it's really popular with bicyclists, runners, things like that, because the data is far more granular than like what you get with Google Maps, for example. So you're getting like, you know, down to like parking lots and trails and oh, par parks. You're getting very, very uh, granular data defining those paths and things like that. So um, it's been going on for a while now. It's had a lot of uh, traction. A lot of big companies rely on their data too, like Amazon, Facebook, Uber, Strava, um, which is a running fitness app, uses it as well. Um, so now that they've grown so much and, and large companies are using it, they're hitting growing pains of like the database performance is becoming hard, um, database replication is becoming hard. So they're having issues maintaining it, um, keeping it performant because they don't have dedicated roles like a DBA that's responsible for managing it. Um, um, so they need more help. They need more contributions. They need more people coming into it. 
Um, they need larger companies that are getting paid to do work to contribute back more to it. And apparently, um, it seems like the community that's been around developing it has not been the most inclusive. So people have people um, have not felt welcome in there. So uh, they, they need to work on that too. So they're trying to make it more diverse and inclusive so people can contribute to the code. Okay. Yeah, this is InfoWorld InfoWorld article by Matt Assay. I've read some of his articles in the past. He's usually very thorough with this stuff. So it's a worthwhile project to contribute to if you're interested in mapping and mapping data, whether you're providing edits back to their map data or you want to help out with the actual code base. Um, I think they're doing some amazing work. Awesome. All right. And that'll do it for our links, I believe. I didn't miss anything, I don't think. All right. So uh, we will see you then again next week with more dev news. If you have any feedback for us, look at Chrome's up to date. Uh, if you have any feedback for us, please hit us up at, uh, at TechCast on Twitter uh, or email us at TechCastFeedback at ChariotSolutions.com. And you can visit us uh, on our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash ChariotSolutions. You'll see our Tech Chat Tuesdays right there. View old ones if you'd like to, and uh, you can certainly look at the uh, show notes there as well. All right. So thank you for attending and uh, for watching this later. And my name is Ken Rimple. Sujan Tapadia. And have a good week. Take care, guys.